Welcome to the Defense Press, Under the Legal Lens, the podcast where we explore the captivating world of criminal trials through the lens of a public defender. I'm your host, Rachel Diane. In this podcast, we dive deep into the intricacies of criminal trials, offering a unique perspective from the front lines of the courtroom. Each episode, we bring you real-life stories of defendants who have faced the weight of the justice system and the complex legal battles that ensue. We will also shine light on the immense power imbalance that exists within our criminal justice system, biased policies, systematic inequalities, and overzealous prosecution. Through engaging storytelling and in-depth analysis, we aim to provide a comprehensive understanding of the criminal trial process. We will explore the strategies employed by defense attorneys, the tactics used by prosecutors, and the critical decisions made by the judges that shape the outcome of a trial. Join us as we examine high-profile cases that have captured national attention, as well as lesser-known trials that deserve a spotlight. We will dissect the evidence, unravel the legal arguments, and discuss the societal implications of these trials, offering a thought-provoking exploration of the criminal justice system. Get ready to challenge your perceptions, explore the nuances, and join us on this journey as we navigate the world of criminal trials from the perspective of a public defender. Welcome to the Defense Rest Under the Legal Lens. And in today's episode, the trial that will be under the legal lens is the People versus Jody Arias. On July 15th of 2008, Jody Arias was arrested for the brutal murder and slaying of Travis Alexander. Travis Alexander was murdered on July 4th, 2008. He was stabbed 27 times. He was shot in the head right above his right eyebrow. And he was also slit from ear to ear so deeply that he was almost decapitated. The evidence that was collected against Miss Arias in order for her to be arrested was several factors that was found at the crime scene. First, strands of her hair was found all over the bathroom and all over the bedroom. Next, a bloody handprint of Miss Arias was found on the wall in the bathroom area of the crime scene. And finally, when the police were going over collecting evidence at the crime scene, they found a digital camera in the washing machine. They could tell that the washing machine had been ran in order for somebody to try to destroy all of the evidence that was found on the camera. They were able to take the camera back to their lab and they were able to pull out some of the photos. There were several photos on there, including naked images of Miss Arias, also inappropriate pictures of Miss Arias with Mr. Alexander. And then finally, there was a picture that was taken that appeared to be taken by accident. And it was Mr. Alexander's bloody body on the floor being dragged by an unknown woman. All what you were able to see in the photograph was a pair of sweatpants and a sock to the right foot of a woman. They believe that this photo was accidentally taken through the chaos of this extremely gruesome and sporadic murder. They believe that the camera was dropped and that it accidentally went off when it hit the floor. And because it accidentally went off when it hit the floor, it only was able to take a very low end portion of the murder while the murder was happening. Like said, you were like able to see Mr. Alexander's side of his head and his shoulder and his back completely bloody. And you were able to see that there was a woman's right leg and her right foot, as well as you were able to tell that the woman was trying to drag 
the dead body across the floor. So during the initial questioning into Miss Arias, she said that she was nowhere near Mesa, Arizona. She was nowhere near Travis's house on the day of the murder. She said that she was taking a road trip during that time and that she actually had gas receipts to prove that she wasn't near Mesa. So the police investigators said, well, hey, look, we found strands of hair that match your DNA all over his room. Miss Arias was like, yeah, of course, like I was dating him. There's going to be strands of my hair everywhere. They then said that they found her bloody handprint on the wall. And she just continued to deny it and said, how do you know that that's my handprint? Like maybe I'd left a handprint there before and then the blood just accentuated it. And so finally, that's when the investigators brought out the photos that they recovered on Mr. Alexander's camera. So the first pictures that the police investigators showed Miss Arias was the photos of her naked on Mr. Alexander's bed with the timestamps of the date of the murder. And she just kept sticking to that she was not there. And she was saying, well, yeah, that looks like me, but I'm not sure if it is me because pictures can be edited and timestamps can be edited. And I don't know if that's a real picture. The police kept pressing her and kept saying, look at all of this evidence and kept showing her more and more photos. And then eventually they showed her the photo of her foot dragging Mr. Alexander's body across the room. And that is when she switched her story from, I wasn't there to the infamous ninja story. Yes. Miss Arias concocted was that she then switched her story to tell the police that yes, she did stop by Travis's house during her road trip and that she was over there. She spent the night, they were sleeping together. She was taking pictures of him in the shower. And while she was taking pictures of him in the shower, two people broke in to Travis's home. And it was a man and a woman and that they had come by. They had started stabbing Mr. Alexander. They started slicing him open. They shot him in the head and that she was so fearful that she didn't try to save or help Travis at all. Instead, she ran into his closet and shut the door. She then claims that the two ninjas, the man and the woman, came to the closet and that they had a knife in their hand. And this was the knife that they used to kill Travis. And that she was fighting back with the female. That the female ninja came and was holding the knife to her neck, was trying to stab her, was trying to kill her, and that Jody had to fight her off. And that's where she got a tiny microscopic cut in between the fingers that police investigators could not see with their visual eye. Jody then says that after a struggle had ensued between her and the woman, the man stopped the female ninja, and the female ninja and male ninja then went into an argument and the female intruder said, I'm not going to kill her. This is not what we came here for. And then they just left. So when the police were saying, okay, so they just left, they, they killed Travis, they stabbed him 27 times, slit him from ear to ear across his throat. And then for good measure, shot him in the head, but they did nothing to you. Why is that? And Miss Arias just kept saying, well, they were saying we didn't come here for her. That's not why we're here. And so they left because they only came to kill Travis, not her. Miss Arias stuck with the story for a while. She even went on to multiple interviews, like live television interviews. She went on an interview on the inside. She also did an interview for 
48 hours saying this ninja story. So after Jody was going around giving all of these interviews from jail, just so we all know, she was giving these interviews from jail. After she had started giving these interviews, she was then appointed a public defender. So if you do not know, a public defender is a criminal defense attorney. And the only difference between them and private attorneys is that public defenders are not paid by their clients. They're paid by the government instead. So she was assigned deputy public defender Kirk Nurmi to defend her. Once deputy Nurmi was assigned to her case, he saw that she did all of these interviews all of these obscene interviews. So he knew that he had to go meet with her right away to tell her, hey, you have the Fifth Amendment. You should use it and shut up. He also wanted to tell her, hey, your story doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It's also not consistent with the evidence at all. So when he first went down to Maricopa jail to speak to her, it wasn't necessarily to get her story straight. It was more so to find out her side of the story her events of the story. She at first was sticking to this ninja story when Kirk Nermy said, hey, I'm not going to put that evidence on because there's no evidence for me to put that on. And I have an oath to the court to not lie. And if there's no evidence to prove what you're saying, in fact, there's evidence to disprove what you're saying, I can't put that out there in the court. Your story doesn't make sense. It's a lie. And all the evidence is showing that it's a lie. At this point, Jody changed her story yet again. So in June of 2010, after a couple of years of keeping her ninja story, she abandons the theory of the break-in. And she now starts claiming that what she did was in self-defense. That she was in a relationship with Travis Alexander for quite some time. And that she had been abused by him the entire relationship and that this evening in question of the murder the abuse had escalated and that she was in fear for her life because she believed that Mr. Alexander was going to murder her. So 25 months before the Jody Arias trial had begun her death penalty public defender Kirk Nermy wanted to quit the public defender's office altogether and walk away from practicing public defense. He was planning on opening his own private practice. So he filed a motion and said, hey, I need to be released from her case. I can no longer represent her as I am no longer going to work as a deputy public defender. When a public defender does this and tries to resign from a case, they can't just walk away themselves. They need to be released by the court. And when this happens, their client also has the right to weigh in their opinion on whether or not they are okay with their assigned attorney walking away. Jody Arias said, no, I'm not okay with this. I want Kirk to be my deputy public defender throughout the trial, and I will be irreparably harmed if he does not represent me. The judge agreed with Ms. Arias and decided that Deputy Public Defender Kurt Nermy cannot resign from the case and cannot resign from the Public Defender's Office until this trial was over. Deputy Public Defender Kurt Nermy was devastated that this motion had been denied because he felt that he needed to walk away from the Public Defender's Office because he emotionally just could not take it anymore. He had been assigned to death row. He had completed about three or four death penalty cases by the time he got Jody Arias's, and he said emotionally he could not handle it, that he could not handle losing death penalty cases 
and knowing that his client was now going to be murdered by the state essentially because he lost. But he picked himself up from his bootstraps. He said, okay, I gotta keep doing this for a couple of years. Because if you don't know, death penalty cases take a couple of years, multiple years to actually get to trial. Ms. Arias's case started in 2008. That's when the murder occurred. Deputy public defender was assigned a little bit before 2010. I believe he was assigned in the beginning of 2009. And then the trial didn't even start until 2013. So he knew, okay, this motion is denied, but I have to suck it up for the next three years. Kirk Nermy filed a motion, another motion, in order to somewhat change the jury pool. He was saying this case is huge. This case is way too massive for there to be a fair trial. That we either need to have the jury completely sequestered throughout the entire trial, meaning that the jury would not have cell phones, they would not have laptops, they would not have access to television. They'd be staying in a hotel room and they would have visitations with their family with like a deputy watching over to make sure they don't talk about the trial or that he would be asking for a jury to be flown in from another county or to have the trial moved to another county in order to get a fair trial, in order to try to get jury members that had not heard of this case yet which was pretty much impossible because the entire United States by this time was already obsessed with this case. The judge denied this motion as well, saying that no, the jury will come from this county and we will stay within this county to litigate the case. So on January 2nd, 2013, five years after the murder, the trial finally started. They've already done voir dire, they've already selected their jury, and now they are on to opening statements. Opening statements is where the district attorney and the defense attorney are going to let the jury know what the evidence is going to show. It is quite an art in order to do opening statements, especially as a defense attorney, because one, you have to try to paint a picture of your client in the jury's mind. They've already heard the district attorney's case first. So they already have a negative connotation, something gross just sitting in their stomach. A defense attorney isn't gonna typically choose to waive giving an opening statement or to reserve their opening statement until their case goes if they decide to put on a case. They almost always want to put on an opening statement right after the DA to give the jury another picture, but to also not lay all their cards out on the table. Because a lot of times the defense attorneys are holding back impeachment evidence that they do not have to turn over to the district attorney until they decide to use it. So the district attorney that was assigned to prosecute Ms. Arias was Deputy District Attorney Juan Martinez. In interviews after the trial, he stated that his opening goal was for the jury to appreciate the violence that had been inflicted upon Travis Alexander. He said, this is not a case of who done it. The person who done it who committed this killing sits in this courtroom today, the defendant, Jody Arias. The person she done it to is Travis Victor Alexander. And in reward for being a good man, she slit his throat. That was the very first sentence that came out of the district attorney's mouth during opening statements. DDA Martinez also points to the fact during his opening statements that she had planned this murder. Now this is extremely important because he is going for first degree murder. In order to get the death penalty in Arizona, he has to prove first degree murder. And first degree murder requires premeditation and deliberation. You could have thought about it and planned it out for two years, two months, or two minutes. 
And it'll still be first degree murder. So he couldn't let the jury think that this was just a heat of the moment fight that resulted in the death of somebody. Because if they thought that, if they thought this was just the heat of the moment issue that resulted in murder, then that's not first degree murder. That's called depraved heart, which is manslaughter. In his opening statements, he tries to pinpoint a motive. And the district attorneys, they don't ever actually have to prove motive. That's nowhere in the evidence code, right? That's nowhere in any jury instruction that's gonna be given that motive has to be proven. But in order to prove first degree murder, it's very rare that a jury is gonna convict on it without a motive. Because if there is no motive at all, then the jury is just gonna be thinking, okay, well, why did they plan this? This really just sounds like two very toxic people got into a fight and now someone's dead. In order to combat that, the district attorney pointed to a motive for the murder in his opening statement saying that on May 8th, 2008, at 9.25 p.m., the defendant sent an email to the victim and mentioned that she knew he was going to Cancun and that she knew he was going without her and that she knew that he was going with another woman. Therefore, she killed him for revenge. He really honed in on the violence because he knew the defense's position was self-defense. So he mentioned the 27 stab wounds, the slicing of the neck to almost decapitation and the gunshot wound to his head, saying that's not self-defense. That's just blatant murder. Now, after the district attorney rested on his opening statement, the defense chose to use their opening statement right after the district attorney. Deputy Jennifer Wilmont started the opening statements and her goal here was to throw emotions into the jury. She had to overcome the fact that her defense is to admit that Jody Arias did do this brutal killing, but here's why. She says, certainly on the outside looking in, it really appeared like they were involved in a very loving and healthy relationship, but nothing could be further from the truth. There's a whole other reality for Jody, a reality that Travis created, because in reality, Jody was Travis's dirty little secret. Despite projecting himself as a good virginal Mormon man, the moment he met Jody, he was pushing and pushing her to have a sexual relationship with him. And in Jody, he found somebody that will provide for him that secretive sexual relationship that he needed. While on the outside, he could still pursue that appropriate Mormon woman. And you will hear a recorded phone call between Travis and Jody that is very explicit. She carried on and said, so what would forced Jody. It was Travis's continual abuse and on June 4th, 2008, it had reached the point of no return. And sadly, Travis had left Jody no other option but to defend herself. He threatened to kill her and given her experiences with him in the past, she had no reason not to believe him. So here's the thing. You can tell that in that opening statement, the brief portions that I've read to you by the defense, they are attacking Travis's character. And this is an extremely risky decision to make to attack a victim's character because the jury is going to most likely hate you more. They're going to see these pictures of a deceased corpse. They are going to hear testimony on how your client was the murderer and how dare you sit here and spit on their good name. The reason why it's also risky is because despite the law, despite what people say, it's never innocent until proven guilty. Defense attorneys almost always have the unspoken burden of proving innocent. And the public has already had this negative connotation that defense attorneys are the bad guy. How can you do that? How can you sleep at night? How can you represent this person? So when you add in the extra sprinkle, of trying to aim for self-defense, you're adding in the risk that the jury's gonna already hate you more than they already do.
When a jury comes into a courtroom, nine times out of 10, they already don't like the defendant and they already don't like the defense attorney. So this almost adds fuel to the fire. But this is why you almost always have to attack the victim's character in a self-defense claim because the law and because the jury instructions are so specific in a self-defense case that you have to paint this image. You have to show these details. You have to prove these facts. You have you to have show this evidence that the defendant was fearful of their life. They were fearful of imminent death or imminent harm and they had to defend themselves or they had to defend others. And the only way to do that is to go through the victim's past of abuse, the victim's past of bad character, the victim's past of anger, the victim's past of physical violence, emotional violence, spiritual violence. You have to show that the defendant did in fact have reasonable belief that her life or his life was currently in danger. And a lot of times people will get extremely upset, just like in this case, people were appalled at the defense. They were appalled that they were ripping apart Travis's character. They were appalled that the defense attorneys were even arguing self-defense. But as US citizens, we have certain rights. You also have the right to a Sixth Amendment, which is the right to an attorney, but it's also the right to your own defense. It is the right for you to tell your story. When a defense attorney is getting up there and preventing a defense, they are the representation of the client. They are telling the client's story. So as a defense attorney, if the client is telling you something happened, such as Mr. Alexander was an abuser and that I had to kill him in self-defense and Mr. Alexander is a pedophile, if the defense attorney cannot disprove this with facts, they cannot disprove this with evidence, then they have to present this because this is what the client is saying what happened. Now, if there's no evidence pointing to this and all the evidence is pointing that this is a complete lie, the defense attorney cannot present this as a defense. As an officer of the court, they have an ethical, an ethical obligation to never present a lie, something that they know full-fledged is a lie. But if they can't prove it's a lie, then they have to go forward by putting on evidence that goes towards this story that the client is telling them. So the defense is continuing their opening statements. Opening statements can go hours to over a day. And in the defense's opening statement, they continue on with their story saying that on the day in question, Jody was over at his house. They were having sex all evening, all morning. And then Travis went to go and take a shower and get ready for the day. Jody grabbed his camera and she went into the bathroom and started taking some pictures of him. She was standing a few feet back so the camera didn't get wet. But while taking pictures of him, she accidentally dropped the camera and it hit the floor and Travis flew into a rage. And while he was in this rage, he started beating her and he started saying that he was going to kill her. And that is how this entire fight for their lives had started. The defense absolutely attacked Travis's character in opening statements, so much so that a juror even gave an interview after the trial saying that Deputy Public Defender Wilmont said something that resonated with him that he couldn't forget the entire trial and still couldn't today. And that was that Jody lived a completely different life and completely different lifestyle until she met Travis Alexander. And that meeting Travis was so devastating because of who he was as a terrible person 
that it changed the trajectory of her life completely. So the district attorney, after opening statements are finished, they have to get up and they have to put on the case first. When somebody's putting on a case, it just means that they're calling witnesses to the stand in order to give testimony, right? Because anything that isn't testimony isn't technically evidence. It has to be testified to. And they have the burden of going first because they technically have the burden to prove somebody's guilt. So the first thing that the district attorney is going to do is he's going to call witnesses to the stand in order to try to rehabilitate Travis's character. Because the last thing that these jurors were left with is that Travis is a sexually, emotionally, and physically abusive man. So they need to call witnesses to the stand that says the opposite of that. The first witness, in order to rehabilitate his character, that they called to the stand was a woman by the name of Mimi Hall. Mimi Hall was a girl that knew Travis through the Mormon church. She said that they had gone on a couple of dates but that she really wasn't that into Travis in a romantic manner. So she told Travis, hey, I think it's better off if we just stay as friends. The district attorney asked her, during that date, did Mr. Alexander say anything sexually inappropriate to you at all? She responded with no. He then asked, anytime during that date, did he kiss you? She responded with no. He said, at any time during that date, did he reach out and try to grab your hand or anything like that? She said, no. The most he did was give me a hug. I felt very safe with Travis. He was very respectful. There was never anything like that. Mimi then testified about how Travis confided in her eventually about how he had a stalker. So she never actually gave the name of the female stalker because Travis never told her who it was. The district attorney asked Mimi, and what had this female stalker done that he warned you about? She responded, she had slashed his tires and broken into his email accounts and bank accounts multiple times. She's sneaking his house through the doggy door and sleep on his couch without him knowing. The district attorney here is trying to allude that the female stalker was Jody Arias. On January 13th, 2013, the district attorney called medical examiner Dr. Kevin Horn to the stand. He testified that Travis had been stabbed in the head, stabbed in the neck, stabbed in the torso multiple times with penetration and hemorrhagic injury of the superior vena cava near the cardiac base. He said that there was a wound of the upper neck with a transection of airway and right jugular vein, carotid artery. <laughs> he said that these stab wounds accounted 27 times and that the throat was cut from ear to ear and that a gunshot wound was found just above his right eyebrow. So not only did the district attorney need to call the medical examiner to the stand in order to prove that Travis Alexander is deceased and prove his wounds and give any evidence that he could find off of these wounds to prove murder, but he also wanted to specifically use, he also specifically wanted to use the medical examiner to thwart the defense's position of self-defense. He did this by focusing on certain key wounds upon the body and certain key words that we use to describe these wounds. DDA Juan Martinez asked Dr. Horn, are you familiar with the term defensive wounds? Mm -hmm. The doctor responded with yes. He said, if you have injuries to the back of the forearms, 
palms or the back of the hands. It is consistent with someone either trying to grab the knife or prevent the injury. So the district attorney went on and said, and by the way you described it, by necessity, you would have to be conscious and alive, right? The doctor responded with yes. The district attorney then showed him a photo from the autopsy of Mr. Alexander and said, and is this what we're looking at? referring to the picture, to the right, is that a defensive wound? Dr. Horn responded with, it could be. Yeah, it is consistent with that. DDA Martinez then showed Dr. Horn Peoples 207, asking the examiner, what is this here? The doctor responded with, that is a gunshot injury to the head. Now, if you're wondering what Peoples 207 means, it just means for every piece of evidence that a lawyer presents in court, we have to mark it as an exhibit. You will hear people's one, people's two, people's three, all the way up until they finish. And on the defense side, you'll hear defense exhibit A, defense exhibit B, all the way until we finish as well. That way we can keep a record from the court reporter who's transcribing for appeal purposes. Now, the reason why the district attorney is going to hone in on this gunshot wound is for multiple reasons. One, to show that Jody is a psychopath, but also because before the trial started, remember Jody was giving all of these interviews before she had counsel. And she gave an interview saying, saying that, that she had actually shot Travis first, but, but that he didn't die and that he kept trying to kill her. Therefore, she started stabbing him. So the district attorney wants to disprove this because he's thinking, okay, Jody gave this interview to the public, meaning she's most likely going to say this on the stand if she testifies. So he wants to play the offensive game. He wants to get out in front of this and disprove it before she can even come forward and try to say it. Juan Martinez continues on and asks the medical examiner, so this bullet, did it strike the brain or not? The medical examiner responded with that the brain was already decomposed so that he didn't get to see a track through the brain just because the bullet passes through the front part of the skull where the brain no normally would be, he would have to conclude that the brain was perforated. Juan Martinez goes on to ask, and if the brain was perforated, what would happen to this individual once he was shot? The doctor answered with immediately capacitated. The district attorney goes, so he would be dead? The doctor responded with yes. The district attorney asked, immediately? The medical examiner responds with rapidly, yes. So the medical examiner then testifies, the gunshot wounds and the wounds to the neck would have had to come after the defensive wounds of the hands, meaning that the slicing of the throat and the gunshot wound above the right eyebrow would have had to come after Mr. Alexander was trying to defend himself and obtained wounds to the back of his hands and the back of his forearms. Through this testimony, the district attorney is pulling apart Jody's story even more, showing that her timeline does not match the evidence. So it is insanely imperative for the defense to really take this cross-examination this cross-examination seriously. And it's very important for them to make sure that they leave some type of impact by trying to discredit this medical examiner. Because if they don't discredit him or his testimony, then their story of self-defense begins to fall apart. And it now just looks like a bloody massacre had occurred for no other reason than premeditation and deliberation. So the public defender gets up and says, just to be clear, you don't have any medical evidence of it passing through the brain, correct? 
The medical examiner responds with, it had to pass through the brain, but the defense attorney is being relentless. She says, no, you testified that you do not have any medical evidence of that, do you? Is that correct? The medical examiner responds with, he would have had to pass through the right frontal lobe. I just don't have any evidence of the hemorrhage now because of the decomposition. The public defender continues, but you didn't see any damage even in your slices. Isn't that correct? The medical examiner responds with, right, that is correct. I could not document the damage because of the decomposition. So here the defense is trying to pry at the fact that the doctor doesn't actually have any medical evidence of his conclusion, that he had nothing to back up the conclusion besides the fact that the brain is behind the skull, that he was not able to see any damage to the brain. He was not able to calculate when the bullet would have entered the head, either pre or post stabbing, etc. And their cross-examination was actually so compelling because the defense attorneys know that these jurors, they don't have medical licenses. So they don't understand why the doctor is being so adamant that no, this bullet would have had to pass through the brain, even though I don't have any evidence of that. Scientifically speaking, it would be impossible for the bullet to not have passed through the brain when it was shot on the right side of the forehead. But it was so compelling that a juror gave an interview 10 years after the trial saying that they weren't sure who to believe. The district attorney when they were examining the medical expert or the defense attorney when they were examining the medical expert. They felt like, hey, we aren't forensic people and we feel like we're being sold two different scenarios. Both seem plausible, but neither of them felt like the DA or the public defender had any evidence to back up what they were trying to argue. And that's exactly what a defense attorney wants to do. They wanna poke so many holes into evidence that seems so blatant. Every prosecutor will be like, what are you talking about? This doctor just got up here and said it's impossible to not hit the brain when you get shot in the head. But the defense attorney gets up there and says, well, where's your evidence? You did slices. You did slices of the brain. Even if a brain has begun to erode, you will still see damage. Where is that? And there was no damage that the medical examiner examiner was able to produce. In my opinion, I don't think the district attorney did a good enough job through science, through the years of the expert's career to be able to really say, how would you know this? At what points in time during decomposition will you no longer see damage? So I think the point goes to the defense here because I think the district attorney did not do a great job with one of their star witnesses. So another issue that the district attorney had to overcome was the gun. Obviously we have stated multiple times that Mr. Alexander was shot above the right eyebrow with a gun, but the police were never actually able to find a gun and were never able to produce that evidence during trial. Not having a gun is a pretty big hole in the district attorney's case. They have to try to connect Miss Arias to the shooting, to the gun in some type of way. So through their investigation, 
they decided to call police officer Kevin Friedman to the stand. He was a police officer in Eureka, California. On May 28th of 2008, a week before the murder of Travis, the home of Carolyn Allen was burglarized. Caroline and her husband resided in Eureka, California. Officer Friedman was the police officer that responded to this call. A couple of things were stolen, a DVD player, a CD player, cash, and a gun. The gun that was stolen was a 25 caliber gun. This is the same size caliber of the bullet that was found in Travis's bathroom. Officer Friedman testified that while he was at the Allens investigating the burglary, a young woman pulled up to the home. When she entered the home, Officer Friedman asked who she was. She said her name was Jody Arias. She was the granddaughter of the Allens and she resided there and had been living with her grandparents for some time. So the district attorney through this testimony was trying to paint the picture that this was too much of a coincidence. That one week before Travis was murdered, the home the Jody home was residing in was burglarized and a gun of the same caliber that was used in the murder was stolen. After nine days of evidence, the prosecution felt like they had done enough to meet their burden and they decided to rest. After the prosecution rests their case, the defense attorney is able to decide if they want to put on a case or not. A defense attorney never has the burden to put on a case. In fact, as you will hear many times, technically, because the burden is on the prosecution, the defense doesn't have to do anything. They don't have to give opening statements. They don't have to give closing statements. They don't have to put on a case. They don't even have to cross-examine if they don't want to. Now that is never going to happen unless a defense attorney wants to be disbarred because of our ethical obligations to be a zealous advocate and do everything we can for our client. But also, like I said before, there is an unspoken rule that we do have to prove our case. The defense attorneys of Ms. Arias went forward and put on a case and their case was self-defense. And in a self-defense case, almost every time, defense attorneys are going to have to put on a full throttle case. So the first thing that the defense attorneys are gonna try to do is rehabilitate Jody's character, which has just been dragged through the mud, right? She's being portrayed as this vicious, psychopath killer that has no remorse, that is selfish, that is insecure, that is a liar, that will do and say anything to get what she wants. So the defense calls Mr. Daryl Brewer to the stand. Daryl Brewer is Jody's ex-boyfriend of four years. In fact, Jody was actually dating Daryl when she met Travis and she only broke up with Daryl in order to start dating Travis Alexander. The defense was hoping that putting on Daryl would show the jury who Jody really was, who Jody was when she wasn't around Travis. While on the stand, Mr. Brewer was asked by the defense attorneys, tell us who Jody was at this point in time. He responds with, Jody was a very responsible, caring and loving person. They then asked him, did she know your son? Cause Mr. Brewer was significantly older than Jody. Jody was in her 20s. Mr. Brewer at this time had already had a child and he already had a marriage and a relationship before Jody. He responds with, yes, she knew my son. And they were very close. Their relationship was one that was very loving and very nurturing. This witness was really helping to humanize Jody to the jury because they were trying to show the jury that before Travis, Jody was a very normal and caring person and that it wasn't until he was in her life that things became extremely dark. 
therefore trying to bolster their claim that Travis was abusive and that he was controlling her. So as with any witness that is called to the stand by either party, the district attorney or the defense attorneys, the other party has the right to cross-examination. And the district attorney pulled out a slugger in this cross-examination. They get up to the stand and say, you were in regular communication with Jody, weren't you? Even while she was dating Travis. He responds with yes. They then ask him, before she took her trip, on June 23rd of 2008, right before she left for her trip, she came over to your house, didn't she? The district attorney then asks, and before she left, you gave her two gas cans, didn't you? The witness answered, yes, I did. This was insanely important. And in my opinion, proves premeditation more than their entire case did. Their cross-examination of this witness that the defense put up proved premeditation far more than any witness that they had called to the stand. Because again, if they can prove premeditation and deliberation, then they can get first degree murder and the death penalty. But if they can't, they cannot get the death penalty. And these gas cans were so vital to their case for premeditation because the Eureka police officers, the California police officers found shoe boxes full of gas receipts by Jody through her travels from California, Nevada, and Utah, but there were no receipts for any stops for gas in Arizona. So the district attorney is painting this picture that Jody used the two cans of gas to get from California and into Arizona and then into Nevada without having to stop for gas so she wouldn't be leaving a trail. And she didn't want anyone to know she traveled to Arizona because she knew at the start of the trip that she was gonna kill him and that she needed to hide this by showing these receipts for all these different states during the time of the murder that were nowhere near Arizona. This is literally premeditation 101. The district attorney elicited from the defense's witness that Jody even rented a car. She wasn't using her own car, trying to show that she didn't want her vehicle that was registered under her name caught on any cameras on the freeways going to Travis's house. He also testified that Jody had had blonde hair for quite some time now, but that when she showed up right before his trip in order to get the gas cans, she had dyed her hair dark brown. The DAs are using this as premeditation even more to show, hey, not only did she not want to be seen and have anything traced back to her, she also didn't even want to be recognized. That's why she changed her appearance. The defense now is going to start calling witnesses to the stand to really start tearing apart Travis's character. They call Travis's ex-girlfriend, Lisa Andrews, Diodani to the stand. Lisa testified that she dated Travis from 2007 to 2008 when she was a teenager and she was also a virgin at the time. They asked her, did you believe that Travis was dating anybody at the time while he was dating you? She responded with no. I believe that Travis and I were exclusive. They asked her, did you talk to him that you knew that sex was on his mind from the very beginning? She responded yes. They then asked her, did you ask him to not talk about sex so much? She responded with yes. But even after you asked him to stop, he still continued to talk about sex. She responds with yes. They then asked, did you talk to him about how you felt 
that he wanted you just for your body. She responded with, um, I did say that in an email and that your kisses didn't mean anything to him. She responded with, yes, I said that in an email. And you told him that you felt like it was a way for him to let out some sexual tension. And she said, yes, I did say that in an email. And you told him that you felt like he had too much sexual tension. And she said, again, yes, I did say that to him. So then the defense starts asking Lisa about her breakup with Travis. And Lisa testifies that she broke up with Travis because she found out that Travis had been cheating on her and that Travis was cheating on her with Jody Arias and that she found out through one of her sister's roommates and that Travis never told her himself, that he kept trying to see her, kept trying to be sexual with her while he was dating Jody as well. So when the district attorney went up to cross-examine Lisa, he was trying to point out that at the time of dating Mr. Alexander, she was very sexually inexperienced. And he started bringing up things like, so while you were kissing, he achieved an erection, correct? And the witness said, yes. He asked her, so you didn't massage his erection to make it go away, correct? She says, no, I didn't. He says, did he massage his own erection to make it go away? She says, no, not that I know of, not while I was there. So then the district attorney asked her, it was a biological response to receive an erection because of your lips, correct? And she said, correct. The district attorneys then said, and at the time, because of your sexual inexperience, you thought that he should have controlled his penis from getting big just because he was kissing you. You thought that was the problem, correct? That he should have been able to control his erection. And she said, yes, correct. He then asks her in retrospect, do you think perhaps some of the comments you made were a little unfair to him? And she says, yes, I guess so. The district attorney then gets really angry at this point. He's questioning her about her sexual inexperience, saying that because she was so sexually inexperienced, it was her fault that she felt like he was too sexual in nature towards her and he wasn't backing off from it. So he gets really angry and he goes, do you think it's appropriate to take a knife and slash someone's throat? The public defender immediately objects, but the district attorney did not stop there. He then whips out photos of the victim's neck to show the witness and to put, to put on, on the screen for the entire auditorium to see of Mr. Alexander almost decapitated. The district attorney at this point jumps up, just screaming. The judge calls both of the parties up to the bench. Whenever a party is called to the bench, we're not going to know what they say. It's not in any transcripts. It's a private conversation at the bench that does not get put onto the record unless there's some type of objection that needs to be made and laid out for purposes of the record after all witnesses have been excused and after the jury's been excused and the auditorium. While they were at the bench though, and they were having an argument about this, you obviously know that the judge was going to rule with the public defender at this point because the district attorney didn't further on with this obscene line of questioning. But while at the bench, the district attorney, DDA Juan Martinez, told the defense counsel, told the female defense attorney, that if he was married to her, he would kill himself. After they left the bench, the judge said, no more shock factors. There was no other reason for you to have done that. Put the photos away, stop this line of questioning. Then, 
to everybody's surprise, but not surprising to an attorney, Jody Arias took the stand. Now you never have to take the stand. You never have to answer police questions and you never have to produce any evidence that will help you get convicted because you have the right to the fifth amendment. And the reason it's not a shock to attorneys is because they were putting on a self-defense claim. And like I said previously, in order to prove self-defense, you have to prove that that person reasonably believed in their first person perspective that they were in imminent harm or an imminent death. There's nobody else that can prove that besides the defendant. And the very first question that Deputy Public Defender Kirk Narami asked Jody Arias is, did you kill Travis Alexander on June 4th, 2008? Jody responded, yes, I did. He then asks her why she responds. She responded with mm, the simple answer is that he attacked me and I defended myself. The defense now needs to start asking questions, unraveling their relationship, unraveling this alleged abuse because the alleged abuse is going to show what state of mind Jody was in on that evening. They need to prove that she had reason to believe that he was actually going to kill her when he allegedly said, I am going to kill you. In order to start unraveling his quote unquote dirty little life, they started talking about the day of her Mormon conversion. When she started dating Travis, Travis would not date anybody publicly or take anybody seriously if they were not a part of the Mormon church. So Jody decided to convert. She went to Arizona, she converted, and Travis was there with her. In fact, he's in almost all of her pictures at this service. She said that after the service, they went back to Travis's house and they were in the bedroom and kissing. He then bent her over the bed and he started to get on top of her. She then testifies that he lifted up her skirt, pulled down her underwear, and was pressing against her. He then began to have anal sex with her. When she was asked if that was something she wanted, she said, well, I can't say that I wanted to, but I didn't stop him. But because Jody has changed her story multiple times and the whole world has seen her change her story multiple times, the defense knew they couldn't just rely on Jody's testimony. They had to find Travis's own words and use those against him. So how they did that was showing the jury forms of their communication between each other through text messages and emails. The text messages that they put up on the screen for the jury to see and Jody to testify to were from Travis. He said to her, you're the ultimate slut in bed. Jody testified that he would also say that to her while they were having sex. He also sent text messages saying, you're feeling like you've been raped, but you enjoyed every delightful moment of it. Another text message said, rejoice in being a whore that sole purpose in life is to be mine, to have animalistic sex with, and to please me in any way I desire. When being questioned about the text, Jody testified that she did not want to feel like she was being raped and that she told him multiple times she felt like he was being raped. And his response was, you say you feel this way, but you enjoy every second of it. She says that she recalls him calling her a bitch, that she's worthless and that she's a slut. They then put up text messages of Travis calling Jody a three hole wonder. That one really resonated with the jury. These messages were extremely effective to show abuse. A jury member gave an interview 
again about 10 years after the trial ended saying that, saying that these messages very much clearly showed abuse and at its lowest form it showed at least emotional abuse the jury member went on to say that he knows many men like Travis Alexander, that they prey on young women and they use their money and their power and they use sex as a weapon. The jury member also said in this interview that during deliberations, they all agreed that some form of abuse was going on for Travis to be saying these types of things to Jody. Jody also testified that she walked in on Travis masturbating one day. She said that she was over at his house and he was taking a long time in his bedroom. And that when she opened the door, Travis was naked on his bed, masturbating to a bunch of pictures around him. And when she had come in, he tried to grab the pictures in a hurry. And when he did, one of the pictures floated up and landed at her feet. And it was a picture of a naked little boy. She testified that she believed that Travis had sexual fantasies and sexual in and sexual interest in children, specifically young boys. Jody testified that after she had caught him masturbating to child pornography, that his disturbing behavior continued to evolve and started to become very fearful for her life. She testified to four different encounters over a couple of months where Travis got abusive. She specifically testified about an evening that occurred of January 22nd, 2008. She said that she went over there to see what he was doing and they were talking in his bedroom and that he told her that he needed to borrow $200. And when she told him that he didn't, and when she told him that she didn't have it, he got angry, crossed the room and started shaking her and that he was yelling, I'm fucking sick of you. And that he body slammed her onto the floor at the foot of his bed. After he body slammed her onto the floor, he yelled at her, don't act like that hurts. He then called her a bitch and kicked her in the ribs. She said that he was repeatedly trying to kick her in the ribs. So she put her hand up to defend herself and that his foot had clipped her hand and that while in the process of clipping her hand, it broke her finger. She then showed up her hand to the jury and one of her fingers, I believe it was her ring finger, was completely bent in. It could not straighten out. It was probably bent at the knuckle downwards and it could not go straight. The defense then presents exhibit 428, which was an audio sex tape from May 10th, 2008. This was a few weeks before Travis's murder. On the tape, you can hear Travis say, I'm gonna tie you to a tree and put it up your ass by the way. And Jody responds with, oh my gosh, Travis, that is so debasing. I like it. Travis then says, I'm going to tie your arms around the tree and blindfold you. Jody then responds with, you're so full of ideas. Then the audio goes into Travis telling Jody to start touching herself, where she tells him that she already is and that he confirms that he is beginning to masturbate as well. The recording then goes on into the two of them moaning and Jody is about to reach an orgasm. While reaching an orgasm, Travis then says, hmm. You sound like you're a 12 year old girl having her first orgasm. It's so hot. Although Jody was going along with Travis in the phone sex tape, it was really a great piece of evidence for the defense because the district attorney was portraying Travis as this Mormon church going boy that didn't have anything to hide and that who the world saw him as was who he really was. And the defense was trying to portray him as this sexually dominant, sexually obsessive and possessive 
abuser. They need to now have Jody explain the night of the murder. The defense attorney puts on a picture of Travis in the shower that Jody took on Travis's camera. They say, hey, we see him in the shower. Tell us what happened next. Jody testified, I was taking pictures. I was probably a few feet from the shower so that the water didn't get on the camera. And at one point, as I moved the camera, it slipped out of my hand. At that point, Travis flipped out. He stepped out of the shower and he picked me up. He body slammed me on the tile. He told me that a five-year-old could hold a camera better than I can. I began to run down the hallway and I can hear his footsteps chasing me. So I ran into the closet and I slammed the door. As soon as I got in there, I remembered where he kept his gun. So I grabbed it and I ran out the other door as he was opening the original door that I shut. And he ran chasing me and I turned around and pointed it at him so that he would stop chasing me. It was like mortal terror. It I, was like I pissed him off worse than I'd seen him ever pissed off. She was then asked, did you feel like he was going to kill you? And she said, oh, for sure. When he said, kill you, yes. He almost killed me before, and now that he was saying he was going to. She then testified that after she grabbed the gun, she pointed at him with both of her hands. She said, I thought that it would stop him because he was lunging at me. The gun went off, and I didn't even know that it had shot him. It just went off, and we were struggling and wrestling, and I didn't want him to get on top of me because when he had done that in the past, I can't get out of those holds that he gets on me. And after I broke away from him, he said, I'll fucking kill you, you bitch. She testified that she was in a fog during the killing and remembered almost nothing for a long time and that there are confusing areas and huge gaps in her memory. She testified that she blocked out during most of this struggle. She said that she has no memory of stabbing Travis. She has no memory of dragging him across the floor, that she only remembers trying to get away from him. She was on the stand for eight days during direct examination by the defense. And after the eight days had ended and the defense had no more questions for Jody, the district attorney, DDA Juan Martinez, got up to do cross-examination. And boy, did he have a field day because there was so much impeachment. Impeachment is evidence that an attorney is going to put on to basically show that you're lying, that you're either lying about your character, for example, let me get up there and say, I'm a great person. I've never lied. I'm as honest as Abe. Well, the district attorney could get up there and say that I committed fraud. Say I committed identity fraud. And they can get up there and they can show that evidence to me and they can show that evidence to the jury and be like, really, you're so honest? Look at you. You lied about your identity. You made up a story. That's what impeachment is. It's trying to go after what the witness has said in order to discredit that. And he had a lot of impeachment to work with because Jody went on this world press tour from jail, talking to inside 48 hours, talking to local news reporters, talking to anybody that she could. And she kept changing her story. Remember, she first told the police that she wasn't even there, that she was on a road trip. Then she changed it to that she was there, but two people broke in and killed Travis. Then she changed it to self-defense. District Attorney Martinez starts off by asking her if her memory loss is recent or if it just started up during trial. And he was gunning for her because she gave him a lot of pushback. In fact, many legal analyses actually say that Jody Arias 
beat DDA Martinez in that cross-examination. That every point went to her because she made him jump through so many loopholes and would not answer his questions. And she would be very precise about every word that he would use. And because she's giving him so much pushback on this cross-examination, he's getting angrier and angrier. And so he asks her to give him some examples. He says, give me some factors. What are some things that would affect your memory loss that you are just now receiving? And she said, well, usually when men like you are screaming at me or grilling me or someone like Travis doing the same. The district attorney then introduces Jody's diary. Usually diaries are not admissible evidence if they don't fall under some exception to the hearsay rule. But in some cases, when they do fall under an exception and when the diary contains very important relevant facts and you are testifying, then it could be used. And it could also be used to refresh a witness's recollection. A diary entry from Jody's personal diary from August 26, 2007 was introduced. It said, well, I guess it's a good thing that nobody else reads this because as I write right now, I love Travis Victor Alexander so completely that I don't know any other way to be. The district attorney was showing that no diary entry that she had ever written described Travis as abusive, described him as vindictive, described him as possessive, described him as a rapist or a pedophile. That in fact, her diary entries of him was just about how much she loved him. And when she was confronted with this, Jody said that the reason why she never wrote about any of the bad things about Travis was that because she believed in the law of attraction. She said in her testimony, in order to understand why I wouldn't talk about anything negative, it's called the law of attraction. You're not supposed to think about, speak about, read about, write about, talk about negative things. Otherwise, those things will be brought into your life more. Now the district attorney is trying to refute the only physical evidence that Jody presented about Travis's abuse because the rest of it is just testimony. It's he said, she said. Well, just she said, because he can't say anything because he's dead. The district attorney said, according to you, he kicked you and he damaged your ring finger on the left hand, correct? She said, it's bent, yes. He said, show us how it's bent again, ma'am. Jody then picked up her finger and she showed the district attorney and the jury where her finger was bent and distorted. The district attorney responds by showing a predated picture with Jody and her sister in April, months after the alleged attack and says, ma'am, if he caused that damage on January 22nd of 2008, that would have had been right before this picture we have here, five months before that, right? The photo is a picture of Jody and her sister months after the alleged attack with Jody's arm wrapped around her sister's body and her hand is resting on her sister's shoulder or upper arm area. And the picture doesn't appear to have her finger bent. Now, if you're wondering why the defense wouldn't have brought this photo, to Jody's attention during direct examination, they probably didn't know it existed. And this is because back in the 1990s, there was a case called the Superior Court versus Igazaga, which came out saying that impeachment evidence of the other party's witnesses does not need to be turned over. So as I said before, so as I said before, reciprocal evidence needs to be turned over to both parties. This is evidence that you believe that you are going to be calling. Now, the district attorney has a lot more rules that they have to follow with evidence than the defense does. But this landmark case said, hey, 
if one of the parties is going to be calling witnesses to the stand and the opposing counsel finds impeachment evidence of the other party's own witness, they don't have to turn it over. That is that party's responsibility to find out everything about the witnesses that you, that they are going to be calling. The only time impeachment evidence needs to be turned over is right before it's going to be used. The district attorney then started showing Jody pictures of Travis. And during this entire cross-examination, Jody was very poised. She was relentless with the district attorney. But once she saw those pictures of Travis's, she covered her face and she immediately broke down. He says to her, look at this. You're the one that did this, right? She responded through tears, yes. He said, and you're the same individual that lied about all of this, right? She responded with yes. The district attorney then said, would you agree that you're the actual person that slit Mr. Alexander's throat from ear to ear? She said yes while sobbing. He then asked, would you also agree that you're the individual that stabbed him? And you would also acknowledge that a lot of the stab wounds were to the back. So it was as if he was being stabbed in the back and you would acknowledge that at that point, he's no longer a threat to you, right? This question was objected to as speculation and it was sustained. Meaning that she did not have to answer it. The question was improper. Jody was on the stand for a total of 18 days. After Jody finished testifying, the defense then called an expert witness to the stand. So almost every single time when witnesses are testifying, the other witnesses are not allowed to be in the courtroom. This is because it will enable the other witnesses to change their stories and maybe be thinking of the other witnesses' stories instead of their own recollection. But there are a few exceptions. And one of the exceptions is that expert witnesses are allowed to sit in during testimony so they can form expert opinions and take their time to either come to diagnoses or run calculations that they need to have run in order to rebut a case. So the defense called an expert witness for psychology to the stand who testified that Jody suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic stress amnesia. The expert testified that this explains why she can't recall much from the day that she killed Travis. Another expert was called to the stand by the defense. This was another psychologist that testified that Jody had battered women's syndrome, that all of and her behaviors and all of her testimony and all of the evidence that they had collected points to the fact that Jody was a battered woman. After the defense rested, which means they were done putting on their case, the district attorney decided they wanted to put on a rebuttal. So after any party rests their side, the other side is always allowed to call more witnesses to rebut the evidence that the other counsel had put on. The first rebuttal witness that the prosecution called was an ex-girlfriend of Travis that he dated back in 2000. Her name was Deanna Reed. She testified that Travis was never physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive towards her. They also called a work colleague of Travis to the stand who testified that the couple appeared very affectionate in public together. And this was trying to refute the fact that Jody was painting this picture that she was this dirty little secret that he was trying to control and keep under wraps. And in order to rebut the defense's expert doctors on Jody's mental health diagnoses, they called a clinical psychologist, Janine DeMarte, to the stand who testified that 
Ms. Arias wasn't a battered woman and she doesn't suffer from any post-traumatic stress disorder or amnesia. And when the defense was trying to cross-examine this expert, they were pointing out, hey, you've actually never given Jody a diagnosis. You've never spoken to her. You have never had her in your office. You've never run tests on her. You are only coming to this conclusion by sitting here the past 18 days while she was on the stand. This is just coming from what you saw in the courtroom and not coming from any physical examination. Now, after the prosecution rested on the rebuttal, the defense did not put on a rebuttal themselves. They just used the cross-examination to rebut the prosecution's rebuttal evidence. So now it went into closing arguments. District Attorney Juan Martinez got up and said this, Jody Ann Arias killed Travis Alexander, and even after stabbing him over and over again, and even after slashing his throat from ear and ear, and then even after taking a gun and shooting him in the face, she will not let him rest in peace. But now instead of a gun, instead of a knife, she uses lies. Let's sit for two minutes. And then he had the entire courtroom silent, just sitting there for two minutes. He did this because they believe that is how long it took for Travis Alexander to die. That is how long it took for Jody Arias to kill Travis. He then goes into piecing all the evidence together. He says that Jody Arias was stalking Travis and that she was obsessed with him and that if she couldn't have him, nobody could. She found out that he was going to Cancun with another woman and that it was this good church going Mormon girl who was a virgin that he could settle down with. And she was nothing but sex to him. He used her for sex, so she was going to kill him. She faked a burglary at her home so she could steal the 25 caliber handgun to kill Travis. She planned out this road trip. She kept receipts of all the gas stations in the cities that she stopped by in California, Nevada, and Utah for alibis to show that she wasn't in Arizona. She asked her ex-boyfriend for two tanks of gas so she wouldn't have to stop in Arizona and leave a trail that she was near the murder scene. She rented a car so no cameras in any of the states could pick her up. She dyed her hair so she could change her appearance because she had been in Arizona a lot and she didn't want anybody to recognize her. And that it wasn't in self-defense. She had stabbed him multiple times. She stabbed him 27 times. And a lot of those stab wounds were to the back as if Travis was running away from her. Or if he wasn't running away from her, at least he wasn't a threat to her because his back was turned to her. And they showed that he had defensive wounds all across his arms and the back of his hands. And that he was shot in the head after the stabbings and not before, because logically the brain is behind the skull where he was shot. And that you heard the expert testify, no, this shooting came after the stabbings due to the blood pool, due to the blood loss, due to the forensics that was collected, it would be impossible that the stabbings happened after he was shot in the head. After the district attorney finished their closing arguments, the defense now put on their closing. And the goal of a defense attorney in cases like this, it's not to get a not guilty. The goal of a defense attorney in a case like this is not to get a not guilty. Although everyone's aiming for that, everyone's hoping for that, that is not the goal in death penalty cases, especially cases like Jody's, where there is an obscene amount of evidence against her. The goal here, the goal here for any defense attorney is to just not get the death penalty. If a defense attorney 
can beat the death penalty, then in a legal standpoint, the defense attorney has won. This is just commonly known amongst DAs, amongst PDs, amongst private attorneys. Whenever the district attorney goes for the death penalty and it's not given because the defense attorney has beat the death penalty, that's considered a win. Even if the client spends the rest of their life in prison, as long as they're not executed by the state, we consider that a win. It's the biggest goal that we have. When the defense got up to give their closing arguments, this was the opening of their closing arguments. Before we talk about the evidence and what this case is about, I think it's important to talk about what the case is not about. It's not about whether or not you like Jody Arias. Nine days out of 10, I don't even like Jody Arias. This was a phrase that was remembered long after the trial was done. The defense attorneys knew that the jury hated Jody. They knew that the whole world hated Jody, but they were just trying to point out, hey, you cannot like someone and still look at this case objectively. You can still hate her, but still look at every single piece of evidence that was put in front of you and deliberate about it. The defense then continues and goes, and the point of this, I think, is what the evidence shows you is that either what happened is that Jody Arias defended herself and just didn't know when to stop, or she gave into a sudden heat of passion from a fight that began in the bathroom. And then what she did, she did under the sudden heat of passion. If Miss Arias is guilty of any crime at all, it is to the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. He goes on to say that there is no way this was premeditated because if it was that thought out and planned out the way the district attorney is saying it was, then there's no way that the crime scene would have been as chaotic and as messy as it was. So here the defense is arguing two things in their closing. I don't like to do this. Personally, I've never done it in a closing argument because it opens up the district attorney's re rebuttal, right? So the district attorney gives a closing argument, then the defense gives a closing argument. Then the district attorney, because they have the burden to prove, they give up to give one final closing argument to rebut everything the defense said. And the defense doesn't get to get back up and give a second one. They only get one shot. They don't even know what their defense is. They don't even know what they believe. In fact, it shows that they probably believe she did do it. So what the defense is saying is, hey, look, Jody acted in complete self-defense and she had so much adrenaline from the fight and from her fight or flight instincts and so much fear that she just didn't know when to stop defending herself. But hey, if you don't believe she did this in self-defense, then this isn't first degree murder. There's no premeditation or deliberation. If this was a killing that occurred, then it's a killing that happened in the heat of the moment when no reasonable person would have the time to cool down. It was not planned out, therefore it's manslaughter. So convict her on that and not first degree. So the trial lasted for about four months and the jury was out for days during deliberations. A few, a few jurors gave interviews years later and said that when they first went back to the jury room, there were actually several jurors that were unsure if they believed this was murder or not because they were struggling with the premeditation part. The jurors were saying that they're struggling because how are you going to premeditate murder with a gun? but then go and have sex all day. But eventually on May 8th, 2013, the jury reached a verdict. They found Jody guilty of first degree murder. And within minutes of being convicted of first degree murder, before being sentenced, before knowing if she was even getting the death penalty, she gave an on-camera interview on Fox 10 Phoenix. 
She said that she felt numb and overwhelmed by the verdict as well as surprised because there was no premeditation on her part. She also went on to say in the interview, I said years ago that I'd rather get death than life in prison. And that is still true today. I believe that death is the ultimate freedom. So I'd rather have my freedom as soon as I can. Two weeks after the verdict was read, the jury has to come back to court to hold a death penalty trial. In order to receive the death penalty, the jury that heard your case has to unanimously decide. And during the death penalty phase, during the death penalty trial, Travis's family got up to the jury, gave testimony, gave these heartfelt speeches, were crying, were showing all these pictures of Travis and trying to convince them to put Jody to death. Jody then got up and she also gave a statement to the jury, but this time she wasn't saying, give me death. She was fighting against that. She wanted to fight for her life. She said, following my arrest, I wanted so much to avoid trial. I got on TV and lied. I lied about what I did and I lied about the nature of my relationship with Travis. It's never been my intention to malign his name or character. In fact, it was a goal of mine to preserve his reputation. I did not want to drag out Travis's skeletons or mine and explain my experiences with him. Additionally, I've designed a t-shirt where 100% of the proceeds go to support nonprofit organizations, which also assist other victims of domestic violence. As she's saying this, she's holding up a white t-shirt with purple letters that spell out survivor. She continues, as I stand here now, I can't in good conscience ask you to sentence me to death because of them pointing to her family. Asking for death is tantamount to suicide. The people who will hurt the most are my family. I'm asking you, please, please don't do that to them. I've already hurt them so badly, along with so many other people. I want everyone's healing to begin and I want everyone's hate to stop. Thank you. And after three days of deliberations, eight jurors voted for the death penalty and four jurors voted for life, meaning that it wasn't unanimous. So this ended in a mistrial. Basically, this means that they have to do the death penalty phase of the trial all over again. They don't need to do the entire trial. It wasn't a mistrial on that. It wasn't a mistrial on guilt or innocence. She was found guilty. It's just a mistrial on the death penalty phase. So a year and a half later, all the parties come back to the courthouse, the same judge, the same DA, the same public defender, but a different jury because they have to redo the penalty phase. So the district attorney doesn't need to put on all of the evidence that he put on during trial because her guilt has already been established, but he needs to put on enough evidence so he can argue that it was bad enough to put her to death. And after a few days of arguing, he rests his case and then the defense argues that they could not be unanimous. 11 jurors voted for death and one voted for life. But in the state of Arizona, you only get two tries to get the death penalty. And if you can't get it, then it's off the table. So in April of 2015, the judge that was presiding over jo Jody Arias's case sentenced her to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Before being sentenced, she told the judge, I do remember the moment when the knife went into Travis's throat and he was conscious. He was still trying to attack me. He was alive. It was I who was trying to get away, not Travis. And I finally did. And after she said this, she then looked back at Travis's family and gave a smile. Essentially, what a lot of people believe, and I do too, is that Jody made this statement as her last fuck you to Travis Alexander's family, letting them know your son, your brother, was alive during this entire murder 
and he was alive as I slit his throat. In February of 2020, the defense began to appeal Jody's murder conviction. They said that Jody did not receive a fair trial, that amongst many improprieties, there was also prosecutorial misconduct on behalf of DDA Juan Martinez. The appeal was denied and the court said that she did in fact receive a fair trial. It should be noted that in July of 2020, DDA Juan Martinez was disbarred in an ethics case in which he was accused of leaking the identity of a Jody Arias juror to a blogger he was having a sexual relationship with for lying to investigators in the Arias case and sexually harassing female law clerks in his office. The sexual harassment allegations were dropped by the state after he agreed to be disbarred, but then the Arizona Supreme Court reinstated the sexual harassment allegations. Earlier in the year, he was fired from the district attorney's office due to numerous prosecutorial misconduct claims, as well as sexual harassment allegations. He was also reprimanded in 2020 by the state Supreme Court of Arizona for violating ethical rules at three other death penalty trials. The Supreme Court ruled that Martinez jeopardized the integrity of the legal system and failed to follow court rules and tried to elicit sympathy for victims in fear of defendants. He has since been disbarred since 2020 and is no longer allowed to practice law in any state. It should also be noted that after Jody was sentenced to life, she gave an interview minutes later saying that she did not want to attack Travis's character. She did not want to call him an abuser. She did not want to call him a pedophile, but that her defense attorneys forced her to do this. Now, this wasn't true at all. Jody made up this lie amongst several other lies that she has made up. And this made the public defenders of Jody Arias the number one enemy of the state. They channeled their hate from Jody now to the public defenders. Deputy public defender Kirk decided to take the summer off after that trial because of the amount of hate that he was getting from representing Jody. And during this time off, he found out that he had cancer. And when he found out he had cancer, he decided that he wanted to write a tell-all book. That he felt like he had gotten this cancer from everything he went through for those years of trial with Jody and what Jody had put him through. This tell-all book that he wrote about Jody Arias was called Trapped with Jody Arias. He said he did it in order to set the record straight. After writing and publishing this book, Jody filed a complaint against him with the state bar for violating attorney-client privilege. Kirk defended his license by saying the parts in the book in which he disclosed attorney-client privilege were parts where Ms. Arias had already waived attorney-client privilege by talking about these matters to the press. But ultimately, the state bar decided, hey, what you did is on the blurred line of being unethical. We're not gonna disbar you because you're correct that she waived attorney-client privilege in certain aspects, but there's still too much weight in the violation of attorney-client privilege that you need to be punished somehow. So they said, we will suspend your license for four years. You cannot practice law for four years. And if you don't agree with this and you don't want to accept your suspension, then you can take this to trial. So when he was given the option to accept the suspension or take it to trial, Kirk decided to make the request of the state bar to be disbarred because he decided he didn't want anything else to do with Jody Arias and that he didn't want anything to do with practicing law 
ever again. Jodi Arias has decided to sue Kirk Nermy civilly for disclosing things that she told him in his book because she says that it has hurt her reputation. The civil lawsuit is still ongoing and Kirk Nermy has hired a civil attorney to fight Ms. Arias on this civil defamation claim. The trial tale of Jodi Arias has come to an end. I hope you've all learned something. I'm your host, Rachel Diane, and with that, the defense rests.